0: Exo-cast. De-
1: Ex-o-cast.
0: Exocast
1: Exocast Exocast
0: Exocast
2: Exocast Exocast Exocast! Exocast Hello and welcome back. You are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond our solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. I'm Andrew Rushby and as always I'm joined in the virtual studio by Hugh Osborne and Hannah Wakeford. In this episode of Exocast, we're going to cover a few of the month's most interesting papers and developments. We've each focused on a single interesting development, I think, that's caught our eye. Hannah's going to lead us off with the possible detection of a biosignature on k two eighteen b which I will let her address. (laughs) Uh, He will cover a planet that has escaped engulfment, and I will discuss a recent paper considering the scale of information transmission in the biosphere. Uh, But I think the big news, and probably the one we want to start off with, is is Hannah's uh, take on the k two eighteen b story. So Hannah, what have you got for us.
1: Yeah, so the paper I'm talking about is titled Carbon Bearing Molecules in the Possible Hycean Atmosphere. Hycean is a made up word which is the high speed smashing together of the word hydrogen and ocean.
2: We have discussed that on the previous episode somewhere, haven't we? We yeah. have
1: talked about these before. This is a paper based on JWST measurements that have been made of, as Andrew said, the planet K2 18b. Now, K2 18b is what we would call a mini Neptune. It is slightly smaller in both radius and mass than Neptune, but it would not be considered a rocky planet. It has a substantial amount of hydrogen still in its atmosphere. So by mass alone, it would require a hydrogen-rich atmosphere for it to exist as it does. So these observations are being conducted with JWST with two different instrument modes in the near infrared. They use the nearest SOS observations, which go from about 0.6 microns, so just at the red edge of what our eyes can see, out into the, the near infrared, studying the lines of water or and of kind of methane and different substances that absorb in those wavelengths. And then they also use the near-infrared spectrograph instrument, near-spec, which has a higher resolution spectrum on it, which takes you all the way out to five microns. So that covers things that we we would see like uh, CO2 and carbon monoxide in the atmosphere are the main kind of absorbing molecules that we would expect there, as well as some ammonia we expect. So you're kind of touching on right on the top there, things that Andrew will be familiar with in all of his work. It's the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen is those key kind of species that describe a huge amount of the chemistry we see around us. So these observations kind of combined together give us this really nice near-infrared spectrum of this planet. And it's not the first time we've heard k two eighteen b If you are familiar with our ExoCup or various previous episodes, we've talked about it in terms of other press releases from the Hubble Space Telescope, for example. And that's because this planet is in what we would term the habitable zone of its star. It is, while a giant planet, it is temperate. So the temperature is around 250 to 300 Kelvin. So that's about the earth, right? So that's a that's a decent kind of room temperature right plus or minus
0: yeah and it's very different from a lot of the the typical mini neptunes that we've been studying which tend to be much hotter so that's one of the interesting things about this planet i guess
1: yeah so it is on that kind of what we would term the, the kind of cool side we use the word temperate to describe those types of worlds that are probably within that habitable range so this being a giant planet in that range with an atmosphere that can be measured, it is previously measured with the Hubble Space Telescope, and they found through a very, very narrow wavelength range that the atmosphere was likely composed of water and you could see absorption signatures. This was the smallest planet we had ever observed where you could see something in the spectrum, and that was really, really key. So it was a core target that JWC was going after. So the team looked at this planet and they have measured the transmission spectrum, the absorption of the atmosphere. And what they actually were able to find is that there is lots of evidence of methane in the atmosphere. Now, methane is one of those substances that we know should be in the atmosphere of exoplanets. And we've been looking for it for over a decade in earnest, you know, looking for spectra and trying to find methane in the exoplanet atmosphere. But as Hugh hinted at, it turns out that our planets might have been too hot because this is a much colder planet, and we're getting those first hints of methane here. So this is one of the first detections of methane. On the same day this came out, another paper came out looking at a slightly hotter Jupiter-sized planet called Wasp 80b, which also with JWST has found methane in the atmosphere. That's about an 800 Kelvin planet. So we've got quite a span from 300 to 800. And we're starting now to see that methane that we've been searching for for a decade. So JWST has opened up a whole new realm of chemistry that we can explore in exoplanet atmospheres. Along with that detection of methane, which is a a very strong detection of methane that they got because they can see multiple absorption bands. They also saw absorption due to CO2 um, as well in the atmosphere. They didn't seem to find any ammonia chemistry. So I mentioned before that they were looking for these nitrogen-bearing species and they didn't seem to find any. And this is where the conclusions start to get a little bit more fuzzy because ammonia not found they seem to suggest that the reason for them not finding the ammonia is that there is an ocean that is under that hydrogen-rich atmosphere. So the suggestion that the absence of ammonia is because there is an ocean under that core acting as a sink, absorbing that ammonia. So first one that I will come back to in a bit. The next statement is that they were looking in that spectrum for other potential species that are absorbing. There's slight deviations from the models. They were looking for any other species that might be absorbing, causing those slight deviations. And they looked in particular in this study at biomarkers. So they focused in on different molecules that are biomarkers and searched for the evidence that they are absorbing in the spectrum. And in the abstract of the paper, they say that the spectrum also suggests potential signs of something called dimethyl sulfide, or DMS, as you might have seen in the press. And they state that this has been predicted to be seen in these types of worlds, these Hyacian worlds, or however you're supposed to say that. And that this is an indication of possible biological activity on the planet. So that is the big press splash. Everyone going, life has been found it in was the planet, yeah. atmosphere,
2: Emails, this questions.
1: Sign of dimethyl sulfide is oh like a possible biological activity in a habitable zone planet. And that's where I'm going to start our walkthrough.
0: Time to get really into it now right? and
1: debugging. <laughs> debugging session. Now, there's a couple of threads on various social medias that you can find. There's a fantastic one by Ryan McDonald where he takes you through everything. The reasons for looking and, and what we can see. You know, the first thing I want to say is that the paper is actually not terribly inflammatory. It presents a scientific argument and it presents a number of different reductions on the data that we've got here. We've got two different data sets that are being measured. We know from previous observations and previous measurements throughout you know, studying exoplanets that when you bring two different data sets together, there's often some offset between them. And you need to fit for that offset. There's a little bit of give in whether or not that we're measuring an absolute value for the atmosphere. So you have to account for that when you're modeling it. You have to allow your data to kind of float a little bit in those groups. So those two different observations that you've got they show in the paper the options of doing that. Do we allow them to float or do we fix them to what we think we measured it to be accurately? And some of these detections completely disappear to nothing when you allow for that. What is actually very common practice and you really shouldn't fix things, you should allow them to float, some of them, they disappear. So I'm just going to take you through each of those kind of statements. Normally when we're doing exoplanet reductions... Multiple reductions are presented because there are differences in the process of analyzing data that introduce systematics or just scatter in the measurements that we are making due to uncertainty in the data. This paper presents a single data reduction, which is not common nowadays. you normally see two or three reductions. So we don't actually see a test as to whether this is accurate to start with because we don't have a secondary look at it. So that's the first kind of Hannah's brains going what's happening? Yeah. It'd be nice to see lots of, lots of reductions on there. But I want to get onto the statistical significance of those different things that are being claimed in the paper. So first off I would say that the methane is really interesting but also slightly, I think this is going to require more modelling from the community, because it's slightly baffling at the same time. The Hubble Space Telescope observation suggested it was water. But methane and water have overlapping absorption bands. They're slightly different shapes, but they do overlap in their central wavelengths. And this paper is now saying that all of those features that we saw previously are actually caused by methane. But those two things are degenerate with each other. So where you've got methane, you could also maybe it could be water. And it's not clear the kind of amount of time that they spent exploring that degeneracy. But I would say that what is very, very clear in here is we have absorption signatures. I do think that they are probably methane looking at them. It's the right kind of temperature range. So I think that's something that's exciting that we're going to need to dig into more. There is evidence for CO2 in this atmosphere we are seeing carbon in this atmosphere. The title of the paper is accurate. Carbon-bearing species detected in the atmosphere of a possible sea world. Great title. It actually is accurate title. That's not what happened in the press.
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things I found interesting was this lack of water, because obviously the, the reason that k two eighteen b is infamous, let's not say famous, mm. is infamous, is because of comments made by certain uh, astronomers after the Hubble data revealed water-rich atmosphere you know because water rich meant that there was oceans this was their logic and that meant habitable zone uh, habitability and it turns out that actually very likely there was no water that they saw so all of the the reason that K218b is infamous is now been proven wrong (laughs) effectively I mean Those conclusions could still be correct, but at least the data from Hubble is now looking like, or the conclusion from Hubble is now looking uh, not particularly solid, right?
1: Yeah, and I think people will be going back to those Hubble data and trying to fit it with a pure methane atmosphere and asking the question, does it fit? Does it still work? Is that available within our statistics? And the answer will be that they are completely degenerate with each other in that both of them could possibly be correct at the same time. Like, both statistically are equally correct, and we couldn't tell from the Hubble data alone. I think is key I mean we discussed it at the time you know if you're seeing water in the atmosphere of a rocky planet you don't want to see it on earth if we see water in the upper atmosphere it means it's escaping it's beyond the stratosphere which traps the water close to the surface you wouldn't see a huge amount of water in the upper atmosphere but this isn't a rocky planet this is a gas giant This does not have a surface in the way that we would think of a surface. The idea is that it has a global ocean, which is this liquid water, but under what pressure conditions, it's not clear. I don't know, you know, it's not clear like how much hydrogen is above that, the fraction and the mass of that, which allows you to tell about the state of that liquid water. It wouldn't be like jumping into a massive lake and hoping to float. It would be under very, very different conditions. So there's still questions about what that means and the interaction between something potentially like that and the the atmosphere lower down and then therefore what we would detect higher up. So we're still measuring very high up in this atmosphere. We're not getting near to that ocean part if it exists at all. We're measuring very high up in the atmosphere. So it's about what can we learn about deeper in the atmosphere or the nature of this planet and its structure from those measurements high up in the atmosphere. So there's still, I think, a humongous amount to learn. And the paper does go into that. The team do mention, you know, there are future things that are needed. And this is such a typical observer thing. But we do need more data for this, because it's, again, there's so many different problems in there. But we haven't even got to the meat of it, which is this thing, which is just kind of, exploded in the media and and in part is due to the way that the press release by the team was written um, is this presence of this DMS, this dimethyl sulfide, which is this biomarker uh, of some kind. And if we think about the Earth's atmosphere, it's distributed differently to what it would be in this kind of atmosphere. So we can't immediately apply some of the lessons that we know to these other worlds. But I want to touch on the key thing, which is the scientific aspects of this study. There is no statistical significance to the evidence supplied for DMS in the spectrum. And yet it's a headline detection. It is not detected in the spectrum according to the statistics that are presented. So if you take the data at face value, if we saw DMS, you would see a big bump in the data at the wavelengths where DMS absorbs light, right? But the data is essentially a flat line at those wavelengths. And we use statistics in a number of different ways. We can use things that are more kind of frequentist, uh, or as is the trendy thing, and you've probably heard it on the show, Bayesian, which is a probabilistic analysis of how you would quantify whether something is meeting your testable hypothesis. Is it there or isn't it there is normally the question we ask. We ask a simple question, is something absorbing? Or is nothing absorbing? So we can test that in a probabilistic way. And the detection significance that they get from that measurement for DMS is essentially on that scale quoted as barely worth mentioning. So there is a scale that goes from extremely, um, like really strong, through to kind of strong detection. And then you get the tentative detections that we talk about a lot. We say tentative detection of carbon dioxide, tentative detection of methane or water. And then you get two more steps before you get to barely worth mentioning. And this detection statistically is is barely worth mentioning. And yet it is labeled on a NASA diagram that has been shared to the press the world over, DMS. Yep. That's a really, really big big issue that i think we uh, that that i don't know how to solve because it's written in by the authors i mean
0: we've talked about this before how we were worried that you know we're, we're moving towards as a field detection of biosignatures and we were worried that in the future there would be these you know boy who cries biosignature occasions where this would happen i did not expect it to happen in 2023 already that we would have one of these kind of you know Hyped false detections. It's really dis- disappointing, really, for the for the field.
1: I mean, there are other aspects of this that are kind of you know I haven't even dug into, and I don't know that we've got time to dig into about the presence or their hypothesized presence of an ocean underneath this hydrogen atmosphere. They present evidence that says that this is a fact, and it's it's also just not presented statistically as a fact. So. There are a number of things that I think can be done with this that would be really, really fantastic. The data is not public, so we cannot do it. Um, The data does not become public until sometime next year when hopefully the community can go in and go, right, let's actually test this because the team have not, in all honesty, due diligence of running multiple reduction pipelines, showcasing that those pipelines are giving the same result. They don't seem to have run multiple retrieval tests on it. They've run a single kind of model framework on it. Normally, we can run forward models and retrievals and pull that all together to build up the evidence for something and still say it's tentative. And that's fantastic. You know, we've got tentative evidence, we can dig after it with more data and understand where do we need to look or where are the key parts so that we can pick this and really dig in. That's just not happened in this case. It's not a terribly written paper in that it presents everything that I have just talked about. It literally tells you in the paper that this is not a significant detection.
0: Yeah, no, the paper's fine. I mean, this it reminds me of the when we discussed the Heisen initial paper. The paper was fine. It, it presented a hypothesis in a, in a in a good way. The problem was that the scientist then went away and wrote a press release with the specific aim. The specific aim of getting media attention. That was their entire goal of the press release, as far as I can tell.
1: So if they'd done like another data reduction and presenting different models, or actually gave a little bit more reasoning why they were looking at the certain different models that they were doing, that would have made an actually really, in my opinion, good paper. It's only an okay paper because it didn't have those extra data reduction steps and kind of extra checks in there. The rest that they've got in there, they present in the paper that this is not a detection. Yeah. So, yeah. You know, it
2: might not be even really worth mentioning, given the um the points that Hannah has made here, very very clearly. But the dimethyl sulfide pathway itself it's an interesting one, right? It's a, you know it's supposed to, on Earth at least the only way that we can, we can detect uh, or that we can uh, envisage making it is, is through a biological pathway. But that's you know not the only thermodynamically possible route. And I know, like I say, it might not even be mentioned. Uh, worth worth mentioning here because the detection wasn't even statistically significant but it does support the idea that there may be an ocean here and i wonder if that is the angle that they're taking with, with this is another example another in quote unquote un- independent thread that supports this idea of this high sea and world which I should just say here, honey, we haven't actually mentioned who the team is yet. And I don't know if that was an intentional choice on your part or not, but it's the same team that came up with the with the term and with the high and world concept. So it's turning very much into a pet a pet planet, I, I fear, for this team. And they're seeing things in the data that that just aren't there. So again, if this was my undergraduate or, or master's degree biosignatures class, I'd be like, okay, I, let's think about the planetary context here. And Hannah, you've made a very good point that if there is an ocean here, the surface is not going to be a surface that we can really really envisage as a surface the planetary context for the production of this potential biosignature is not convincing. And there have already been frameworks, Bayesian frameworks that we developed way back in 2018, that span that gamut that you said, very unlikely to very likely in terms of, a weak, we don't want to be certain about this, we want to take a, a probabilistic approach. And this would be, yeah, several orders of magnitude below the the very unlikely side of things, given the detection, given what we know about the planet, given its planetary context, and given really the uncertainties in the dimethylsophade pathway uh, for production.
1: That lifetime of the species, so the lifetime of a species in the atmosphere, that formation pathway that we have for the Earth, is almost certainly not even applicable in this case, because... The lifetime of any species in an atmosphere is dependent on the background conditions of that atmosphere. The background conditions of this atmosphere is hydrogen, ours is nitrogen. They are, you know, they walk around in pairs, they're still got the same base structure, but they're incredibly different. So, we can't really even generalize the knowledge that we have on the earth of what DMS does to this other world. And I think that that's a key thing that. You know, it does require extra lab studies. It does require extra data to confirm whether or not this is a detection at all or if there's anything there whatsoever. But I'm going to bring it back to the fact that if the press release that is written by the team says that they identify this weak signal and they use these words, they use these qualifiers that could be attributed to DMS, and then NASA goes and takes that and takes all the qualifying statements out and publishes it as a possible detection of a molecule. A possible detection of a molecule is a really strong statistical statement.
2: And it's already made it into the DMS Wikipedia page, <laughs> which I just checked here to see the boiling point. <laughs> um, which is so crazy it's, because we've lost control it's a of this
1: really now. careful thing about language and I don't want to see us go the way of Mars.
2: How many times have we talked about this on the show, right? I think So many there's... times.
1: Maybe we're already there. Maybe we're already on the way of going, you know, we've cried wolf too many times
2: yeah i mean phosphine was similar right indeed mm. but we've said you know the one thing to do is to control the press release once it's out there we lose the capacity to do that but the press release is so important and i think you know most scientists now recognize that for better or worse maybe in the past you might have just let the press office do it give it a quick once over make sure everything was accurate and then let it go out but now i feel like as i say for better or worse that. The press releases are being checked by the team, and this language is still being made into, it, you know, making it into the final product, which is, I, I would say, an egregious oversight uh, at the at the very least.
1: And the problem is, with all of this, we're missing out on the really exciting thing. This is. A temperate giant planet where we have measured an atmosphere. It's the smallest planet for which we have measured an atmosphere. That's insanely exciting. That's what
2: we'd be talking about now, right? Like, this would that's be the, so the new exciting story. Yeah.
1: that there is yeah. this atmosphere that we can measure around it and we're starting to understand what that is made of. Like that alone is really cool. And I don't think we're ever gonna talk about it.
2: It would have been in the news anyway, right? Except we'd be talking about that detection instead of what we've we've discussed for the last fifteen minutes or so.
1: Yeah, so I'm going to leave it there. I would encourage our listeners to be critical of the press releases they see from the Exoplanet community. And if you have the capacity, you know, read the paper. If you don't, drop us a question and we'll happily, happily chat about it on the show, trying to put on our best science hats as we do so. That's all I can say on that matter. Exocast. What have we got, Hugh? What are you talking about this week?
0: Yeah, so I, I uh, picked a paper about a planet discovery, which I tend to tend to do, right? But this one's a little bit interesting. This is a close-in giant planet which escaped engulfment by its star, um, which was uh, in published in Nature, led by Mark Hahn a couple of months ago. Now, at this stage, we've found hundreds of hot Jupiters, but we never find them around these old post-main sequence stars which have gone through this volatile stage at the end of a star's life so so this is when typically stars become enormously inflated hydrogen gets used up in the core of the star and this causes a reaction where the star becomes a giant but goes through this giant phase and indeed our own star in five or six billion years time is going to expand to at least one au and earth may or may not survive we're not entirely sure whether the earth would survive the end of our star's life. Hence, you know, it's very unusual to find planets orbiting stars which have gone through this end-of-life giant phase. But 8 Ursa Majoris b appears to be exactly one of these stars. So it's it's a 1.65 Jupiter-mass planet on 90-day orbits around this star in, in Ursa Major, so in, the, in uh, a naked-eye star in the Northern Hemisphere. It was initially a candidate found by a South Korean team of astronomers in 2015, but then recent high-res observations, so... Uh, high reses on, on the Keck telescope, confirmed it to be a true planet. And its star, 8 Ursa Majoris, is one of these large giant stars. However, you know, initially, six or seven years ago when it was uh, just a candidate, it wasn't really possible to tell where on the so-called giant branch it was. So whether it was just in the process of becoming a giant and the, st- the planet was about to be engulfed, or whether it had already gone through that phase and the planet had, was actually post-engulfment or post-inflation. But what the team did was they used precise photometry from tests, so from the last few years uh, from space, in order to measure the acoustic vibrations of the entire star. So this is the so-called astroseismology. And kind of a bit like a tuning fork, the frequency and the form of those vibrations depend on the physical properties of the object vibrating. So in this case, the stellar density and stellar temperature determines exactly what the vibrational modes of the star are. So this means that by using this, we can constrain the stellar parameters and we can be sure exactly where 8 Ursa Majoris is in its evolutionary state and the team found that it is actually a core helium burning red giant which means that the outer layers of mostly hydrogen have already been lost after this initial expansion phase so it's already been a much larger star and now it's just this core helium burning star the stellar parameters also constrain exactly how large the star would have been, how big it, it would have expanded, and confirmed that the currently observed planets uh, would not have been able to exist a few mega years ago, a few million years ago, as it would have been inside the star at that point. This kind of proposes the question of how did it get there? You know, why is why do we find a planet on this 90 day orbit? And they propose a few solutions for this. So one possibility is that the planet actually migrated inwards to its current position after the star shrunk, either by this extremely lucky tidal interaction that kind of pulled it in as the, as the star was shrinking, or more likely due to an interaction with an outer companion, so another star in the system which which was able to push the planet inwards. Alternatively, the red giant could have merged with a companion white dwarf, which prematurely stopped the expansion of, of the red giant phase before it engulfed the planet. So this would be effectively a way to to stop the giant becoming large enough to engulf the planet or alternatively that the planet might have might have not existed a few million years ago it might actually have been accreted from some source of gas and dust that occurred after the giant phase and this could be for example from the material maybe spewed out if the star was was part of a merger so if another star came in and, and collided with the giant and then uh, the material that was spun out from these two uh, colliding stars could have maybe formed a planet. So this is just you know one interesting way by, where by finding the, the planetary system is actually able to constrain uh, how stars work and how, how stars interact. So I think that, that's, that's one of the cool things about this, this detection is that if you find planets in unusual places, it, it enables us to tell, us, you know, tell something about the physics behind star and planet formation and evolution. So that's my paper for this
1: month. That's so cool. I'm trying to imagine what that potential ejection of material looks like to form such a massive planet, though. The migration one seems the most plausible to me. Do they present like a plausibility of each of these scenarios in the paper?
0: I mean, they kind of present them in order, and yeah, I think that the migration one is their preferred scenario, mm. but there's multiple ways this could have happened. And I think that, I guess in this case, this is another, another way that more data might help. For example, they do see a trend in the radial velocity suggesting that there isn't a third star or a third object, a second star potentially in the system, which could have been responsible for the migration. So mm-hmm. more data will help help them pin down as to whether that... A star that's there could have been responsible for the planet moving in after the giant phase or not
1: yeah it's a naked eye star in ursa major it's seen the plow is seen from most northern hemispheres and you see it throughout the year absolutely beautiful you know let's get a picture up with a nice arrow it is here and, and <laughs> we can go look at it uh, in the night sky
2: How would it feel like we could learn something about the origin of the planet from its composition as you said i don't I, again how we measure that if we could do any spectroscopy on the atmosphere or something um might give us a little indication as to f- you know what it was formed from and therefore maybe what how it was formed in the first place yeah
0: interestingly as well the composition of the star is a little bit weird that was one hint that maybe it wasn't migration maybe there was this collision or this binary system that then co- coalesced in and that the, the that caused some change in the stellar composition. Now, I guess the planet's going to be a lot more difficult to uh, observe just because it's, it's not transiting and it's And it's uh, right. and it's uh, you know it's, it's quite close. It's 0.5 AU from, from a star that's uh, 100 light years away or something. So it's going to be very difficult to image, for example. Uh, so I don't know if we'll ever get compositional information for the planet, but the star can tell us uh, something about how the system evolved as well. Exocast.
2: Andrew, what did you look at this month? As usual, I've gone for, uh, well, maybe not as usual, but I've gone for a slightly out there (laughs) out there paper. So regular listeners might recall a paper from Ramiro Saide and others that I covered a few episodes ago now in which they attempted to quantify how much kind of technological noise we're producing and how much of that's leaking out into space. A prime example of a a technosignature. So actually in this paper, a recent paper entitled Planetary Scale Information Transmission in the Biosphere and Technosphere Limits and Evolution as so this is from Manasfi Lingam, Adam Frank, and uh, Amadeo Belby. And this appears in Life Journal uh, this, this month, Open Access, so you can check that out. They build further on this idea of kind of information transmission to space, less of the transmission and more of the kind of quantification of, of, of that in terms of the biosphere. So obviously the previous paper really focused on, you know, technological transmission. But what about biospheric information transmission, which I thought was really interesting. hence why I caught my eye. So firstly, what it's meant in this context by information transmission, transmission in terms of the biosphere. So organisms obviously communicate over different scales in many different forms. Like we're, we're communicating right now, uh, hopefully some interesting useful information that you might be enjoying via sound, which produced by air moving through my vocal folds probably too quickly as usual, then transcribed digitally in MP3 and then transmitted via speaker or headphones to the audio processing organs in your ear, which then turn those sounds into neural signals and then your brain can interpret as, as words. So in this paper, very different approach, right? The authors are focusing almost entirely on prokaryotes so all the astro folks who are listening remember prokaryotes are single-celled organisms they lack nucleus uh, internal membranes other uh, you know other complex organelles and you know the 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 big example is is bacteria and they focus on prokaryotes alone because the total number of prokaryotic cells on earth is probably three or four maybe three orders of magnitude greater than that of eukaryotes so that's you know multicellular organisms like us despite the latter representing a proportionately Greater biomass due to the larger average mass of eukaryotic cells. So there's just more prokaryotic cells around, but the um, eukaryotic cells are, are bigger and have a have a greater volume. So eukaryotes, as I said, can range, you know, from uh, you know bugs to, to humans. So they're they're quite difficult to generalise in a kind of information context. But I think the paper makes a pretty good case as to why we could just focus on information transmission between prokaryotes at least to start with, um, given that it would probably dominate uh, in terms of the biosphere of the Earth. So Prokaryotes then communicate by signaling molecules known as autoinducers, and these are mostly to their immediate neighbors in response to some sort of environmental stress maybe symbiotic interaction or virulence, or infection by virus or an antibiotic production or moving around utility or even the formation of a biofilm Um, they can regulate gene expression or they can you know coordinate their behaviors at the population level as i said to maybe work together to make some sort of biofilm type community so This communication system can then, I guess, be broken down into the three components. We have the transmitter, the channel, and then the receiver. So the transmitter is the organism that's trying to induce a a change in the receiver organism by the propagation of a chemical messenger, i.e. the channel. Okay, so (laughs) that's the theory. So the model in this paper is relatively simple. It operates on an orders of magnitude level approach, which is probably the appropriate one, and considers only a few variables that are assumed to be relatively static in time, which is one of the caveats. So the variables are the total number of prokaryotes, the mean number of prokaryotes with which a single prokaryote can communicate, the fraction of the total population of prokaryotes that is active at any given time, and the information transmission rate between a pair of prokaryotes, which is expressed in terms of mutual information exchange that is transmitting and receiving those signaling molecules. So, then the authors consider this in a biofilm type context, which I've already mentioned before. So, biofilm is, is uh, yeah, essentially like a microbial mat uh, of, of bacteria that's built up, one of the most ancient structures on Earth, you know, stromatolites, they're made out of, of biofilms. And they're probably pretty accurate in terms of a representation of where most prokaryotes exist, somewhere between 40 and 80%, the paper says, in terms of where prokaryotes exist, is in a biofilm type environment so they then use all of that information to determine that the global information transmission rate for the biosphere might be around 1.7 times 10 to the 24 bits per second so to put that in context that exceeds the corresponding rates of estimates for the information transfer for the technosphere that's all of the technological developments that we've uh, produced by nine orders of magnitude so that's a it's a it's a large increase so however they do caveat that by saying Uh, assuming uh, an exponential increase in information transmission in the technosphere, which is maybe not accurate, this value can potentially surpass that of the biosphere in about 90 years time. Um, So not that far into the future, which kind of reflects the increasing dominance of the technosphere in terms of information transfer, I guess. So this is all kind of abstract and a little bit out there, but I think the takeaway is that is that the Earth's complex biosphere is distinguished by a substantial amount of information flow and exchange and perhaps alongside metrics that we've already been using to try and quantify life quote-unquote or, or the biosphere in terms of energy or energy rate density or Gibbs free energy Maybe if we adopt or, or supplement those metrics with measures like information content or information transmission rates It might be more realistic or holistic and and robust as a means to de- define and detect biospheres going forward so the authors at the end consider the Kardashev-Sagan scale, which some listeners might be familiar with, but this is pretty common in astrobiology and techno signature research in which we classify a technological species, which humans are the only ones we know at the moment, based on their energy or power consumption on a global scale, and this suggests that this scale maybe could be complemented by one of these information transmission rates. Proxies to maybe form the Kardashev, Sagan, lingham scale <laughs> instead. So I guess the question is: Can we detect some of these carrier molecules from space, or some indirect measure like biofluorescence via spectroscopy? Uh, probably not. And you know, Hannah and you can <laughs> can speculate on that much better than I. But I shouldn't. I shouldn't imagine so. But I think this does maybe reflect a, a general trend that I'm, I'm definitely noticing in astrobiology right now to integrate more like information based systems and like topological network theory, whether it's chemistry or information into how we think about life and defining life with obvious implications then for biosignature like detection. So I think we're going through a bit of an information revolution uh, in maybe more mm. ways than one when it, when it comes to this work. So a suite of three very different papers there, um, which is one very, of the great things different. about ExitCast, hopefully our listeners will agree. Stumped you guys? No questions? Okay. <laughs> I mean, I guess I just don't see any impact yeah.
0: <laughs> of counting molecules that, that pass between one bacteria and another I just
2: don't see how that would be useful. In terms of (laughs) defining the biosphere or or conceptualizing life uh, in a kind of topological network?
0: Yeah, in terms of more astrobiological implications, I could see that for measuring some aspect of life's interaction, which is not well measured, that might be useful. But in in an astrobiological context, I don't see, because it is, as you hint, probably unmeasurable, even on Earth. Well, I guess on Earth, we can go to the lab and measure
2: how many molecules are created, but, but doing that for every single prokaryote would not be possible right yeah and even that's before we start thinking about you know eukaryotes and how we exchange information which is you know beyond the carrier molecule <laughs> level of complexity but like i said i think they made a good orders of magnitude type uh, approach to this i was surprised to see that the biosphere is much more informationally efficient in terms of transmitting information than the technosphere is right and that comes down to like thermodynamics in, in a way as well so there's some fundamental questions here um but you know me i like to bring a slightly different a different paper to the uh, to the news discussion yeah. given that we you know we cover a pretty wide range of things and and hannah technically bagsied the interesting biosignature a "Quote unquote interesting biosignature <laughs> section from this, from this month, and I think she was the better person to discuss that, given the spectroscopic interpretations that were required to be made, given the spectra that we had.
1: Yeah, and I was very polite about it too.
2: <laughs> you're certainly, were Hannah, kept it, kept it PG. We'll, we'll, we'll see what, whether you're polite when the show is over. <laughs>
1: We do not publish the explicit edition of Exocast.
2: <laughs> yeah, join us for Exocast After Dark sometime. <laughs> Hannah can really, can really, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know
1: that. You don't want can really that
2: <laughs> okay, well, don't forget
0: to look out for our other episode this month, where we chat with astronomer Max Günter about transiting exoplanets, flares, ESA Kops, Tess, and uh, all of that good stuff. Let us know what you think about the show through our various social media um, accounts or on our website exocast.org where you can find all of our previous shows. You can help support the show and the Exocast team by heading to buymeacoffee.com exocast. A big thank you to all of our past owners there. Without you, we can't keep the show running, so thanks so much. You can also get your hands on some Exocast merchandise, so t-shirts, stickers and more, at exocast.threadless.com. Exocast is edited by Fergus Hall and available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks
1: for listening and we'll see you again soon. Bye. Bye-bye. Hi, Bye. Exocast. You have been listening to Exocast. The Exocast team is Hugh Osborne, KOPS test postdoctoral fellow at the University of Bern in Switzerland. Hannah Wakeford, a lecturer in astrophysics at the University of Bristol in the UK. Andrew Rushby, a lecturer in astrobiology at Birkbeck University of London in the UK. Our podcast is edited by Fergus Hall and made possible through your donations. Find out more at exocast.org.